These tools are for you to use. These tools are for you to use. Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My name is Dave Marr. I am a comedian. I, I live in Chicago. I was in a coma for a month about seven years ago. So, you know, who cares? It's all it's all done now. All better. I was eulogized on Facebook. I woke up. I got to read those eulogies. And now I got some questions. Not for the people who wrote the eulogies, but for people like my guest this week, Chris Gethard. I want definitive answers to unanswerable questions. So we're going to throw them at Chris this week. And... I want to do a little bit of a longer intro, a little bit of a longer intro than I normally do for the guest, because Gethard is one of the most meaningful artistic figures in my life. Um, yeah, and so I, I, I want to talk about that. And selfishly, if you're listening to this, if you don't know who I am and you know who Gethard is, stick around, listen to the show, because... I'm I'm real hard pressed to think of someone whose work has a bigger overlap in the Venn diagram with mine. And so if you like Gethard, but you want someone who's a little thornier or spicier, um maybe uh not as good of a person, more more of a mean guy than Gethard. Hopefully that's not true, but here I am. You know, uh, so I, I feel I'm putting pressure on myself to really fucking pitch this well to you guys. I don't know when I first came across Gethard's work, but I will say the most meaningful early experience I had was with his public access show, the Chris Gethard show, which became a, you know, cable TV show, but it's it started as a live show and went to public access in New York. And he established the blueprint for doing something like this where, and the internet's so random and scattershot now, where saying he had a public access show might not seem so weird, but it was fucking weird, man. And it's like, it's low budget. It is DIY in the truest sense. Um, also in the truest sense, because DIY is not just about like individualism. It's kind of not about individualism at all. It's about the fucking community. And we'll get into that. You'll hear some Gethard hits in this episode, but I think we also get into some territory that he doesn't normally cover in interviews. And I'm excited for you to hear that. So anyway, back to my early experience with Gethard's work, I didn't want to go back and do the little bit of research because I knew it was going to puncture my memory and it did, but it, it is, it, it was a, a series of what I thought were back to back episodes of the Gethard show on public access. Um, they're in fact, not back to back. Maybe I just saw them back to back when I was like binging the show while I was depressed and kind of had been doing improv in Chicago for a while, but maybe before I had started stand-up or, or just as I was starting, uh, going through a bad breakup. But the two episodes are um, TCGS number 87, Let's Get Real, which had some of the most 
just sad, sometimes harrowing stories. Just an hour of people calling in to his public access show and like, you know, people say, let's get real as a turn of phrase, but this was like even scary real at parts. So that episode, and then I immediately, the next episode I saw, it was not episode number 88, the next one. It was episode 99, which is titled Looking at Dicks for an Hour, A New Low. But those who are familiar with the show might remember it as the Dick Skirt episode. A few of the show's dudes uh, pulled down their pants inside of a skirt and answered questions about each other's dicks. And the combination of these two things together was honestly revelatory to me. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to be able to be as maybe not quite as raw as the Let's Get Real episode, but pretty close. And then I want to do whatever my dick skirt is. And so I won't say this podcast is a uh, an homage to that exactly. I think this lands, well, I wouldn't even say it's on that spectrum. Um, but the point being, Gethard has been a big inspiration to me, and I feel very grateful to call him a friend now. We've met at various points. We had a bunch of mutual friends when a bunch of my friends moved to New York and met with him, met with him like it was some meeting. They they met him uh, in the New York scene, and he was instrumental in helping me make it out to my first Edinburgh Fringe in 2018, which changed my life. He was a big supporter of my first one-man show, Dave Marcoma show, uh, about the coma, which I tend to mention every once in a while. And yeah, that's uh, now since then, he's been, he's given me advice. He's been a nice dude to talk to. I've opened for him here in Chicago. He stayed at my old, very shitty apartment. Um, and, and I just, uh, yeah, I, I, I have huge love and respect. And as you'll hear early on, uh, disagreement with Gethard about, yeah, all the most important things in my life, art, creativity, the ethos of pursuing all that stuff, uh, comedy. Let's not let that get lost in there. So that's that's my little uh, my little Gethard big up in the intro here, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Um, so if you're if you're you know if you don't know me or if you don't know Gethard, uh, or if you somehow don't know either of us, welcome. So uh, genuinely glad you made it in, but I'm curious how you know. But whatever the case, check out the show notes. You'll find links to follow me, links to follow Gethard. You'll find links to Gethard's new book. Um, it is a scribbed original. It's called Dad on Pills, Fatherhood and Mental Illness. And you'll find a link for that in the show notes. So check that out. I'll also put links to those two episodes of the Public Access Show in the show notes. So I hope you enjoy those. I want you to know, like Gethard at various points, a little less now, but, uh, you know, 
if you if you want in on an early Gethardian bandwagon, I, I got room, baby. And the point being, I'm an independent artist, and word of mouth is how I get people to hear and see the things that I make. So if you, you know, the way to do word of mouth in the digital age, you can click the subscribe button, you can write a 30-second review in your podcast app, you can tell verbally or text one friend. And honestly, the words that everyone who makes things, especially independently, without the support of industry, needs to hear is keep going. Gethard does a great job of that in his books, in his podcast, Beautiful Anonymous, and in his comedy. And if you want to send me the message to keep going, you can subscribe to my Patreon. I think this show is worth five or 10 bucks a month. That's what, like $2.50 a week for for one episode? Plus, if you're on the Patreon, you get to hear the full unedited convo, which as as relatively long as this episode is, there is more conversation that you can hear over on the Patreon. You also get the companion podcast. This is your after show, which is ridiculous. And I'll let you explore that on your own. And you can get a shout out in the episode. So shout out to those Pigeon Level subscribers as of now, Susie Carroll, Fred Fidoa, Kurt Chang, and Katie Llewellyn. And that's what I've got. So thank you for listening to this extended intro here. And I really sincerely hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Gethard. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatown. When I'm in Shatown, I treat it like... So, okay, so I wanted to tell you something first. Okay, are we recording? Um, we're we're te- we're technically recording, but I just okay. like to like... It, like, we're not jumping right into like heavy death stuff right off the top. Yeah. Because... Uh, I mean, you know, you, you've you've been an improv guy. We got to do some warm ups first, you yeah, know. Yeah, sure. Um. Okay, so there's we had an exchange that you might not even remember, and that like has kind of been a pivotal um thing for me over the pandemic and like kind of realizing some stuff about comedy. And this is the warm up before we get to the heavy stuff. <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, I guess this is like uh I don't know. What would a what would a I don't know. I'm not Carmen, man. I, I don't know the like goofy uh warm up style. Yeah. You oh, you mean you don't just live in bits? <laughs> yeah, right. I I opened for him uh in December and I had to like take a break i had to pause and be like and this was about 20 minutes into us interacting and i was like hey man i just want you to know like bits aside like it's really nice to see you and i'm like really glad to be doing this and he was like yeah buddy okay and uh because the rest of it was just like i we don't hate each other right like i think i think we we love each other and yeah uh but it was just all you know, shitting. He moved to LA. He and I had gotten so tight and been doing so much, many shows together and like just endless bits. But then also touring was like, you know, car conversations that would get very, very real. And then he, yeah. and then he moved to LA and my wife, her reaction was, Oh no, who's going to be your friend now? And that was depressing. 
because she was it wasn't wrong i had a friend and then he moved i think about that there's like a mark Marin bit where he talks about having like two friends and it's like the main guy and then the guy you go to when you drain the main guy yeah that's pretty good and that i think about it like probably once every six months yeah yeah but i also want you to know that i I know that you're no amateur and, and I, I see what you're doing here stalling do before, before we get to the, what's, well, what's this the, pivotal? Okay. I'll stop <laughs> stalling. What's this pivotal exchange that, well, redefined, okay, so, that redefined you so radically? <laughs> well, it, it didn't redefine, you know what it was? It didn't like redefine things. It just like allowed me to give myself permission basically over the pandemic, uh, uh, probably like two I tried to let this shit change me. I'm looking around. It feels like maybe I thought we were all doing that. And maybe not everybody's doing that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and a couple. So one of the big things about comedy, I was just like, I finally gave myself permission to admit that I do not want to be a club comedian. Okay. To, to be like, this is, this do, there's no reason this needs to be my gold standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've mm-hmm. not been actively pursuing this so why don't i just admit and say and you know and say that to myself and it felt very freeing but the thing that i remembered was a text exchange it's probably 2017 maybe 20 no no i think it would have been after it would have been 2018 i think like after i went to edinburgh the first time Mm -hmm. and i was doing some guest sets at the comedy bar in Chicago, which is like the worst of the comedy clubs. Like it's, it's combined with a Giordano's, which is like the big soupy pizza place, you know? Uh And, and it's just all the stereotypes of, of, of people like, like all the bad parts of a comedy club, like amped up to, to 10. What did I say? And yeah. well, and I and I texted you and I and I had had like not even a bad set, just a mediocre set, and I just felt really misunderstood. And I was just like, "How do you do it, man? Like, I know you do these clubs, and I think you had either just gotten past at the Comedy Cellar or were like that was a part of your you were talking about it a fair amount. Okay. And okay. I was like, "What are you doing at these at these clubs?" And you were like. Dude, you just got to hit them hard right up top. I think of it like, I don't know if you, you use some sort of like pugilistic metaphor. Maybe it was like that boxing sounds, or something. Like, You're yeah. like, you, you got to like, you know, you got to show them who's boss, like right up top, hit them with like the, the funniest, uh, like quick jokes. And then you can trick them into uh, these stories. Um, you know, that, then I'm telling them these weird stories about my childhood. And I was like, and the thing that changed it was like reacting against that advice. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I hate this. I was like, I don't want to like <laughs> battle people. Like that sounds, and and just giving myself permission yeah, like to I'm like psychologically damaged human <laughs> being who makes every, oh, well, everything I, into a war and a fight in my mind. Well, I mean, I don't not, do that right but but i just was like well and first of all the first thing i was like gather didn't even hear my opening jokes and he's just assuming that i didn't bring like 
the hottest stuff, which is not what you said at all. You know, yeah, no, that's, that's my own you. damage. That's on you. Yeah. And, but I also, I also definitely the jokes that I thought were like hard hitting and up top were not, they're like, they're jokes about like having a favorite poet. And I thought, I thought it would be like, I thought that was like the sort of joke was like, yeah. oh, I'm a sensitive guy. Like I have a favorite poet and I'm like, that's funny. That's, that's hard hitting yeah set up punch so my stuff, so i was you know? completely correct in other words you were, so you were, well, mad, you were completely at, you were mad at me for a thing i wasn't was, mad at you i was saying that i wasn't but actually was correct about no 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 you were correct if <laughs> you were correct if if i were to accept the paradigm of like this is war yeah yeah and and i was like i don't want this to be war yeah and so that was basically like yeah. Well, that's I, it. I, I've always thought that about any, like, look, we, you and I both have a background in the improv world, which really does have a lot of big fish and small ponds. It has a lot of guruism, a lot of hero worship. And um, I was always very aware of that, um, both as a student and as a teacher. And when I was a teacher, I was really good. But I think one of the things that I was really, really good about, because there was some hero worship around me in New York in my era. um, But I was always very clear, very, very clear to people of um, making sure, like, if what I'm saying works for you, all of it really works for you. And if it doesn't work for you, I hope you're really analyzing why it doesn't work for you and, and making choices that go in the direction that feels like a better fit for you. Cause that's how you're not like, that's how you're not wasting your money. Like, and I think I am of a countenance and I think you and I share this. I think part of why you and I became friends pretty quickly after meeting is like, I don't want you to just unquestioningly do what I say. Like, that's insane. I've never once entered a situation where my goal was like a person will tell me to do a thing and I'll accomplish it without question and if i do correct and they pat me on the head i feel good about that it's like no 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 i mean you know um certainly certainly like the music i listened to growing up was you know is all about questioning and um i think i think that's one of the reasons why i can kind of hold my head up high and say like i didn't i i i've never been content and i've never been i've never been someone who just accepts things at face value. Um, so I, I've always felt like when it comes to creativity, any advice is like, you're going to either, it's either going to seem on target or it's going to seem off target. And both are very valuable reactions. Like, because one means that someone has given you advice that clears the path a little bit, right? Makes it a little bit less of an uphill climb. You go, Oh, you just said something. You managed to like verbalize or crystallize something got it that's helping me or i'm like that doesn't feel that sounds like bullshit why don't i like it okay well if i can answer why i don't like it maybe now i can clear the path for myself a little bit so i guess what i'm saying is you're welcome yeah thank you yeah man i mean it's not for everybody to want to get in there i also i mean I actively enjoy walking into situations where I know the show's going to be bad or difficult or hard and worthless. Like it's it's largely worthless for me to do situations with like 
antagonistic crowds who want no sensitivity or thoughtfulness in their comedy, it's generally worthless. But um, <laughs> for me, what I, what I found was, uh, you know, first of all, maybe getting passed at the clubs felt a little bit like acceptance. And there is, yeah, craving, for sure. There's some craving of that for sure on an ego level. But I also knew I was like, like I go into these clubs and if I can survive and figure out how to thrive there, then when I go back to doing my more sensitive stuff and my more thoughtful stuff and walk into the rooms out in Brooklyn where that's the norm, it's almost like my, the joke parts are on steroids now. You know? Absolutely. And like, I don't not value those things, you know, like I do, I don't, I think sometimes my perception of myself is that I'm like somehow weirder than I actually am. Uh, and I, and, and I, I like the thing that I reject about the clubs is it's just this hyper macho. Thing. Well, that's changed a lot in the past five or six years too. Really? Um, well, certainly there's always been elements of it there, but, um, and there were like someone like me going to the clubs. I always felt very proud of like an outlier that flew in the face of the stereotype, but I'll tell you a couple of things. I will say like there, there's a generation of sort of like macho, con like the tough crowd guys, right? Like, right. um, and I've gotten to know a fair number of them through the New York scene. And I could say that most of them are very, very hardworking people and they give each other shit. But if you work hard and you pay your rent and you're not fucking up the show for everybody else and you're meeting the bar, they're down. Like, right. They're down. I would say that there's probably a generation that has come to emulate them and chase them and it keeps becoming a photocopy of a photocopy. And I think that that has come to dominate a lot of comedy, certainly a lot of club comedy. And I'm at the clubs a lot less than I was like, it feels like a lot less value for me these days that like five, six years ago for me to go in and be like, okay, this is a shark tank. Can I do my stuff here and survive? Felt like high value. Now I'm like, I, you know, there's there's people who make their whole thing, and there's a lot of great comics in the club. So get me wrong, but there's a, a lot of people who make their whole thing about like everything's too PC and too right. cancel this and blah 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 and macho this and macho that and and it's like I would just encourage anybody who's a comedy consumer out there to go if that's all you've ever heard a person say the only reason you've ever heard of somebody is because of like them ranting against cancel culture. Well do the math. And it's like, they didn't, they can't get canceled. They haven't said anything. They're just selling tickets by like jumping on this trend and fanning the flames of this kind of macho bullshit. Um, so that's become very gross to me. That's really funny. And it, because I feel like the, the, the now response to those guys is like, well, you're getting a bigger platform, so how are you getting canceled? But it's pretty funny to think of the fact that they're also not even saying anything. They're just saying <laughs> the content itself is meta-commentary about – it's it's like this next guy coming to the stage and all it is is introduction. Yeah, yeah. It's empty calories in a big way. Uh, yeah. And it goes in both directions too, right? Like there's another side of comedy – that 
I think is like morally very much on the side of right. Um, but where I go, oh, this is becoming, this is like where, where I go. It, it ba- basically what I'll say is this is there's a lot of people who live on extremes in the comedy world. And if you actually watch what they say, there's no jokes there. This goes for people who are like the super macho people. And then it also goes for people who I think maybe ride the coattails of movements that they're not actually adding to, you know? And, and that's the reason why I I draw some lines in the sand on that too. Cause I go, if you're just managing to survive by checking boxes in any way, you're taking up air in the room that other people who need it could use. And I'm like very, very aware that I'm past my prime um, in, in some ways. And that like the fire in my gut as a guy who's about to turn 42, who lives in, you know, the suburbs now and raises a son. Like I've been like, sometimes I've sat around and go, man, like I used to have the public access show and people thought like I was really saying some stuff that was relevant. And I go, well, that was also 10, 12, 13 years ago. And I had some stuff to get off my chest and I don't necessarily have as many important things to get off my chest. And like, it's fine for me to get out of the way for the people who really have some stuff to say, like, that's fine. Um, and I can work hard on my own career and pray that an audience still wants to come see me after all these years, but I'm not going to be the one getting a lot of press right now. And that's good. Like I got the press when I had some stuff to say that deserved it. Now there's a lot of people who deserve it. There's also a lot of people who make a feeding frenzy out of, again, photocopies of photocopies of saying stuff that feels important. So in general, as an artist, it's just, there's a lot of people who know how to create a lot of noise, but I don't really know what their art is. Um, yeah. And I find it very confusing and very bothersome. So I just try to put my head down and make my stuff and hope that people still give a shit. And they progressively, they do progressively less, but they still do enough that I can live and hold my head up high and feed my family <laughs> and pay my mortgage. So thank God for them. So I don't know, man. I'm sorry I sent you that text. I don't know. Paint a customized hell for you. Uh, Can include anything. Yeah. But specifically designed to torture you. Yeah, okay. So the first thing I'm certain of is that Aerosmith is playing. Um, Okay. The soundtrack is Aerosmith. Is that because that is that like a super Jersey childhood thing no. that feels torturous? No, I think they were, I mean, they're a Boston band. It was more just right. like being like, I've had people in my life explain to me that early Aerosmith uh, is good and interesting music. But I, I, I just remember like the nineties when it was like, Steven Tyler was dressed like fucking Macho Man Randy Savage and on my TV mm-hmm. endlessly. And it was just every song was like, crying when I met you, dying to forget you. And I'm like, yeah, I can't with this bullshit, man. Um, so I just found <laughs> Steven Tyler to be like a cartoonish, irritating presence in my youth. Like, like I would say as someone who was like of an age of MTV obsession, I almost feel like in some ways, like Kurt Cobain, like Steven Tyler is almost what Kurt Cobain erased is like that behavior. Like Mm -hmm. it's where fringe and have feathered hair and be screaming and yelling and like pants so tight. You can see the outline of your massive cock. Like 
Like that's I I almost feel like Kurt Cobain came in and obliterated that specific archetype of which Steven Tyler was yeah. such an avatar. So Aerosmith is playing um let's see. And that's a really good start for me. What else would be going on in my personal hell? Um, oh, I'd probably be forced to wear sandals. Uh, I, I've never been a sandal or flip-flop person, so that's probably the only available footwear. Is that because there's like a self-consciousness about your feet? I don't know what it is. I don't know what okay. it is. I, I do have some self-consciousness in, about my feet, but that's developed later in life. Um, that's fun. But I never liked sandals. So I'm probably wearing sandals and socks. Aerosmith is playing... It's very, very, very sunny, and the only foods that are available are tomatoes and olives. That's that would be very hellish to me. I hate tomatoes too. Yeah, I like tomatoes. I'll, I'll eat a tomato sauce. I can even handle a sun dried. Yeah, but the yeah, consistency. Absolutely, tomatoes, olives. They have this consistency. I can't handle them. Can't handle. See, I like olives, but tomatoes. It's a mushiness yeah, can't to do me. It. The way the seeds are kind of like suspended exactly, in there. Exactly. Yeah. And then people have said to me like, oh, well, you got to eat really good tomatoes. And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, because that is my opinion is that I, I don't find them really good. So if you can give me one that's right. really good, you know? Yeah, really good anything. Yeah. That's why when people are like, what's better, stand-up or improv? I'm like, good stand-up's better than bad improv. Good improv is better than bad stuff. It's not right, right. If you show me a good tomato, and I'd love to see what that entails, but it's not right. The in- way that everyone takes it as a challenge of like, well, you haven't had the fucking yeah. St. Louis tomatoes. And I'm or like, whatever. yeah, cool. Say, and I'm from Jersey. Jersey's kind of famous for its tomatoes, but I've never taken to them. And it's that sliminess, the seeds. The seeds mm-hmm. look to me like something out of a science fiction movie. Oh, also in my hell, there's probably like a. I've always hated horror movies. Probably like a horror movie with a bunch of jump scares playing. Really? You hate horror movies? Oh, good God. I feel very manipulated by them. Wow. I feel like you would be a horror movie. Guy. Well, I'm, There's such a like DIY aesthetic to them. And, and like, I worked at like Weird New Jersey Magazine. I, I, wrote, I used to write for right. a magazine and wrote books about ghosts and stuff. And we used to go explore abandoned mental hospitals and would just go by myself and loved it. So like real life, I like creepy stuff and even scary stuff. Halloween's my favorite holiday. I just don't like being in a theater where it's like somebody's going to come around a corner and jump out at me. You know, like I don't like that yeah. feeling of like the music and the mood. So yeah, there's like horror movies. There's like a horror movie on a screen on mute. Aerosmith is playing. I'm wearing socks and sandals out in an unrelenting sun with no uh, no shade to be found. And the only food for sustenance is olives and tomatoes. Those are good aspects of my hell. And uh, So it's a very like sensory... There's not a lot of like existential horror going on. There's no like true. panic attack or or anxiety I've or lived or those. I know how, I know how to handle <laughs> those. I've already. Okay. It's the mundanity of these things that I, I would actually say that there's hellish. truth to that. That hell to me is it involves a lot more of being like bored and persistently irritated on a slight level. Um that sounds more hellish to me than like being in the thick of real problems. Perhaps. I mean, but, but if we're going to talk prepared. like real life hell, it would be like 
loved ones uh, being lowered into like molten sure. pits in front of me while I can't catch my breath and uh, and I'm having panic. Sure. Sure. There's that version as sure. well. That That's has, classic story. You know, like somebody has like a – Your family's terminated. Yeah, right like somebody's got eyes. like a spear with the end heated up and they're like simultaneously burning and cutting me while my loved ones are being dangled by their ankles into lava pits. Like there's that too if you want that mm-hmm. version of it. You tell me hey, it's your version. version. I don't. I, I don't. I'll I don't stick want with the any Arrow version. And sandals version. Then I know it's a little lighter and funnier, but I thought it was what came to mind. Okay, you, know. you don't have to defend it. But yeah, it could also be like, you know, giant monstrous uh, mutation of my father's face, telling me I disappointed him while watching, you know, people from throughout my life suffer endless physical pain and i'm being told i can stop it but it's like a sisyphus scenario where i can't really and i just work endlessly to try and i'm failing all of them and they tell me that it's all my fault there's that i think we got it okay man (laughs) hey it's dave i'm not talking to the guest right now i just want to let you know i intentionally construct these episodes to allow my guests to speak as much as possible. But if you enjoy the perspective of mine that does come through in this podcast and you want to hear more from me, please subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Hella Immaculate. There is a link in the show notes that you can click and sign up right away. You can also go to my website, thisisdavemar.com. What you'll get is every week an essay from me and basically a mood board of links, sometimes mutual aid fundraisers and music that I recommend. It's like we're in a conversation and hopefully I'm sharing cool stuff with you. I'm either your cool friend or your slightly anxious friend, probably both. Anyway, if you like hearing from me and you wanna hear more, Subscribe to Hello Immaculate. Thanks. And now back to the conversation. What do you hope happens when you die? Wow. I guess I never really thought of it from that. What do I hope happens? That's how I shortcut the atheists. Yeah. Because if you if it's think, it's like half my guests are going to be like, nah, nothing. Which is fine. I'm not even yeah. saying I necessarily disagree. Well, I still have like some shreds of Catholicism that I haven't stepped foot in a church and I can't claim that I support the Catholic church as an institution sure. in any way, but like still certainly being raised in it, some shreds of it. Um, I guess I would say like if there is any sort of afterlife and I could, I could you know, have some asks of like, here's some things that I would hope. I think at this point in my life, it might be schmaltzy to say, but I would think it would be in some way something where I could, uh, you know, just kind of linger around in the background and enjoy seeing who my son becomes after I'm gone. That would be a nice thing. Not even feeling like I need to affect him in some way or like I'd be spying on him, you know, always had that thing that like my, like the, all the weird Catholicism. I remember whenever one of my grandparents died and I'd be like, Oh, now they can see everything I'm doing and like all this mm. thing of like, oh God, man, like my grandparents know I jerk off now. Like all this, all these dark, twisted right. thoughts that come with like the guilt and shame of like Catholicism and afterlife. I don't need any of that, but it would be, it would be pleasant to feel like, oh, like I'm just kind of like floating around as some 
particles in the air and I can just enjoy seeing my son continue his life. And I, Are there specific moments you would want to uh, pop in for? You know, I was 39 when he was born. Um, yeah. So you figure, let's figure, I'm probably not going to meet my grandkids. And if I do, I'm not going to know them all that long, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be like many adult decisions he has to make that are the types of things. Oh, this is heady. Like there's a lot of stuff that I've been able to reach out to my parents about um, when I need their help, whether that's like simple stuff, like, Hey, like I'm in, you know, everybody, when you move to your first apartment, you're like, Oh, this thing's broken. And how do I fix it? And you reach out to your dad and your dad's like, here's how you fix it. You fix it, you know, Yeah. even, but over the big life stuff too, you know, um, sorting through mental health stuff. My parents were there for me and, and I was able to talk with them, you know, at various points in that process and get married and all, you know, having my own son, like there's all these things that, my parents have been very involved in and that I just think age wise, it's unlikely that I'll be able to be there or offer as much to my son when he needs it. So it'd be nice to kind of feel like I could be swirling around in his presence, soaking it in, in some way in, in the tough times and the good times, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I just really get a kick out of him. And that's a very basic pretty is pedantic the word i'm thinking here way to think of think it pedantic pedantic is like you're teaching someone uh something. what am i thinking pedestrian pedestrian is what i'm thinking. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like but it, it's also the most truthful thing of like it's just gonna be a lot of stuff i miss with my kid because i was really i was i was almost 40 when i had him and that's mm-hmm. okay and that gives him some advantages too in certain ways um but if there's an afterlife, I, I hope that it's something where I can touch base, keep where I can keep tabs on him and, and keep getting a kick out of him. It's simple. I like it. It is. Well, the older I get, the more that the more it becomes truthful to me that it's like the things that really matter tend to be very simple. Sure. Uh, and I don't know how true that is for everybody, but I do notice that all the people I'm around, that, that it seems like simplicity and happiness are really connected. And that people I know who have like complicated lives, even if those lives are ones of like vast professional achievement, they don't always wind up happy. And in times it sometimes seems like it makes it harder to be happy. So simplicity has been something that's very, you know, I, you know, this Buddhism is a beautiful culture that has uh, thrived for many years, shouting to the hilltops about it. Um, I can't claim that I'm an authority on it, and it's not an original thought, but I am very. Well, happy I think when, when you like simple, people talk about gratitude, right, as like this kind of magic bullet for for happiness and everyone's like, Oh yeah, I keep a gratitude journal. But if you like even try it a little bit, the things I start thinking about being grateful for are like, yeah, on my way back from seven 11, I saw this really nice tree. Yeah. You know? And, and to think about that is really, 
I'm like, whatever, the tree's boring. Let's get back to fucking what the next big show is going to be. Blah, 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 blah. And it's yeah. like, well, and the we'll show's never as big as the tree is going to be like, no, in the, in the, oh, okay. It, thanks for that. No, no, no. In the no, long run, can you, can you really point to me to one individual show you've done where you go, that one is the one where everything changed. It's like, no, it's really more a culmination of the sum total. Oh, but that's what I mean. I mean, like, you know, the process of putting together right. the, the one man show. Right. You but know? you don't need to like, trade. You don't need to trade enjoying a tree to focus on the theoretical show that's going to happen next yeah, Thursday. Absolutely. Because all of it, all that side of stuff, snowballs however it does at its own pace and momentum and it's just a bummer how many trees i missed along the way i've yeah i'll tell you man one of my I, I one of my great regrets i went to a friend's wedding and it was with a bunch of other comedians and i was giving a friend of mine a ride home and he was going to teach class at ucb and i had promised him a ride home and then uh my girlfriend at the time wanted to go swim in this lake before we left we were up in new england and uh I just felt such responsibility of like, I promised my friend to ride home. We got to cut this short. We got to go drive home. And there's things like that where I'm like, could have swam in a lake for like another hour. I could have told my friend like, hey, fuck your improv class. Like, sorry. Like, I want to swim in a lake. And like, too much of that. And I'm trying to catch up on those things a little bit more later in life. Like, nah, Well, the nice thing matter. about the simplicity of your son is like, I bet you would enjoy, speaking of mundanity, I bet you would enjoy his mundane moments in a way that he wouldn't. Like, I bet it would be fun for you to just watch him brush his teeth. Well, it's, it, it, yeah, it's totally true. And, and I would go so far as to say, like, I see from his perspective as someone who doesn't know anything about the world, like, there's all these things that are totally mundane to me that to him mm -hmm. are mind blowing. And it's such yeah. a good reminder. Like this is so soft and so cheesy, but if I'm driving in a car and he's not with me, he loves trucks so much that like mm -hmm. if I pass a construction site and there's a bunch of trucks and they're like active, I'll sit there and be like, man, Cal would love that. Ah, it's such a bummer he's not here. And like, after a certain point, I realize, oh, I really like the trucks. Yeah. Like, what a gift he's given me, right? Like, yeah. I'm getting excited. Like, oh, man, I wish Cal was here because those trucks are awesome. You can also just shorten that to me going like, those trucks are awesome, you know? <laughs> and like yeah. a few years ago, if I was driving past a construction site, that's part of the background noise. But it's like, he gets so excited when the garbage truck rolls through the neighborhood. And then- there's times where we hear it and it's like, I'm like sprinting across the house and being like, Cal, Cal, come on. We got to get to the one of the garbage trucks coming. And it's like, I still get the dopamine effect of I ran across the house and there's the truck and we got to get there in time. And buddy, we saw <laughs> it. Look how awesome the garbage truck is. Like I'm doing that all for him. And that's his perspective on the world is that the garbage truck is mind blowing, but I still get to run across the house and be like, come on, we got to get there in time. And then we get there in yeah. time. And I get that. And he gives that to me. And what a simple, dumb thing. It's a garbage truck, you know? Um, but it's a fucking garbage truck. It's awesome. It's big and it's loud and it, it 
pull that lever and it crunches down all the garbage and there's like dudes jumping off of it and running and dragging cans <laughs> and it's noisy. And when it pulls away, you hear the brakes lift off. And it's like, yeah. like he gets excited about all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm going to sit, really sit here and worry about like, <laughs> acting jobs. Like it just feels <laughs> so silly. Just feel, yeah. it just makes everything feel so silly. Because the simple stuff is so cool. He's like really into birds. He like sees birds and he's like, oh my God. <laughs> I sit there and I'm like, well, yeah. Like, these things fly in the fucking sky. And then they yeah. land on my front lawn. That yeah. thing was up in the sky 30 seconds ago. Mm -hmm. It's not even, I'm not even talking about like a condor. I'm talking about like a sparrow. Mm -hmm. There's a sparrow on my mailbox and it was just up in a tree. That motherfucker can fly. And I sit there and watch my son go like, what the fuck is this magic creature? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you read a book to him about a dragon and it's like, how do I even explain to him that dragons aren't real when like from his perspective, like, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, there's squirrels. Yeah. He just watched a squirrel <laughs> jump off a power line run across a branch, jump onto our house, and then vertically run down the side of it. Like, I'm 41 years old. How many times have I seen that in my life? He just went, an animal jumped off the power line and vertically ran down our fucking house. Yeah. Yeah. Like, in his mind, dragons might be real. What's the fucking real difference? Right. There might be a fire-breathing lizard. Yeah, I guess breathing fire is the one new thing, because most of the other stuff, like... Between squirrels and birds, you've got a lot of the dragon Think stuff. Think about it, though. Like, that's – it really is just an endless gift. And, like, there's a lot of stress and a lot of exhaustion and all those things are true. But I really wish people talked more about, like – and it's not, you know, people go, like, oh, yeah, it's the best thing I've ever done, becoming a parent. Uh. And that's, like, its own cliche. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, like, I get to, in my 40s, be psyched – that I just drove past a cement truck on the highway and it brings me so much joy. And that's when he's not with me, let alone when he is. And I'll be like, Cal, coming up on the left, man, coming up on the, it's a cement truck. The back thing is spinning, dude. They got it turned on. It's spinning, man. They're cemented. And he's like, ah, ah, ah. I'm like, yes, the world is fucking endless, endless bounty of miracles. I have to see that side of it again. And then I go, what's fucking acting get me except health insurance, man? Oh, shit. I mean, I get health insurance this year. Okay, so I have a, I have a premise because this show grew out of my second one-man show. Not the coma show, but the sort of weirder yeah. afterlife show. Well, yeah, um, and what was the name? It had a funky name. Yeah, it had a funky name, and I'm retooling it, so it's got a new name. But the original name was Feed Wolf Ice Cream. That was it, yeah. And the new name is literally The Afterlife. Ooh. Um, and, but anyway, so there's a, there's a premise that I put forth, which is in The Afterlife, you get to fully relive one memory. Ooh. It, it, the rest aren't wiped. 
it's just as if a room that you get to walk into and you like experience it in a way where it's not just playing in your mind. You're like fully re-dropped down into this memory. But if you had to choose just one, what would that be? And this is a thing we relive, not a thing that we can adjust, not like a regret we can correct. I mean, it's, uh, uh, um, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a test. Do whatever you want, you know? Wow. I have thought about this a lot because I've like spent a lot of my professional life dwelling on sad moments from my life. And I have sat down and go like, what's the happiest? Like, what's the happiest I've ever been? Um, and it doesn't have to be the happiest. No. It doesn't have to be a summative. It doesn't have to be like, here's all your life in one memory. So just eliminate the perfectionism from it that I think people sometimes feel when I ask them this question. Okay. There's a few things that come to mind. One is obvious is being in the room for the birth of my son. I've talked mm-hmm. about my son a lot already, so I'll put that one on record and say that 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 is the if you really put the screws to me, that's the answer. Okay. Um, but to explore new territory, there's two things I can think about, which is um Okay, one was in 2003 into 2004, I got a job in LA. It's the only time I lived in LA. I got the job on a Thursday and I was told to be at work on Monday. I was the writer's assistant on a show for Comedy Central. And I just dropped everything in my life and I moved out there and it was, I had never been further west than the Mississippi River and I went for it and I went out there. Um. And I had been really depressed and dealing with it for the first time. And I went out there and was 3,000 miles away from everybody I knew. And this woman who was six years older than me eventually um, like, went out of her way to like seduce me. And we dated for a little bit. It was the first time anything like that had really happened in my life. And it was just this first time realizing like, oh, I put 3,000 miles in between me and who I was. And it was cool. And it was all based on being like, yeah, I'm going to go for it. I got this job, like short notice. And I had to quit another job that I loved and move away, family, this and that, blah, blah, blah. But the real thing that I remember is like when that job was up, there wasn't much of an – there was a there was a, a, a thriving alternative scene in – LA at the time, but it was like for like Pat Oswalt. Like it, it felt to be 23, 24 years old, not mm-hmm. know anybody in there. It was UCB wasn't around then. I was like, I don't really know how to get stage. And what am I, am I going to go back to Jersey? I'm going to move to New York for the first time. And my gut was telling me move, move to New York. Like I'd been doing UCB, always commuting in from New Jersey. I'd never fully committed to the New York life. And mm. I drove cross country to get home. And I'll tell you, Spent like four or five days on the road with a friend of mine. We drove home and uh, stopped in Jersey. Saw my mom for the first time in like four or five months. And then went to drop my buddy off at his place in Queens. And uh, then when I drove back, I, I went to Manhattan. And my instinct had been like, I think I might need to like try to give New York a real shot. And I parked my car in Manhattan 
And I walked seven blocks from where I was up to the UCB. And in those seven blocks, I cut through, uh, hung out for a bit and watched and then cut through the gay pride parade and then walked down a block where they had shut down the block because um, my favorite bar was having a, a stickball game block party. And then I went and turned the corner and their eighth Avenue was shut down. They're having a big street festival, people selling wares and food. And then I walked at the end of it and I got to UCB where I, I was like, and this is where I'll have like all this stage time to chase my dream. Like they've already accepted me mm -hmm. here. And that day I, I never forgot. Um, as far as like, man, I've never had a day where it felt like, oh, I've been wondering, do I go to LA, Jersey, New York, where it felt more like, dude, this was the best New York day you could ever have. Right, the right. The Gay Pride Parade, a stickball game, a street festival, and it all is in seven blocks from when I parked my car to where I got the theater, where I, as like a dopey 24-year-old kid, can go and have like a lot of acceptance and stage time. That was a good day. And then the other thing- And it sounds like the opposite of- the mundanity that we're talking about. It's like hard to think uh, of more stimulation. The dream than... for an ADD person. <laughs> <laughs> and I can, t I can crystallize it down though. And I know my answers are long, edit it out, but I have another thing coming to mind. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> so like we have the TV show and the TV show it was a really special thing. You know, it started at UCB as a stage show. And I, I was like, I know this is special. And I stuck with that motherfucker when it would have made a lot of sense to drop it. And then the public access show had so many ups and downs, but it started like catching an audience of like, and I was like, this is meaning something to a certain type of person, you know? And then it goes to cable and it's like, oh, wow, the spotlight's on us and we're selling out. We got to figure out how to like do this the right way. And now we're fighting the network and also trying to make sure like the old fans know we're not compromising too much. And this point being like, it was always so much work. Every iteration of it was joyous and work. And I like being a workhorse and I like when I'm busy and I like getting my hands dirty, but it was always work, work, work. But I'll tell you like during the cable years, and I've never said this publicly before, but there was a thing where, um, my friend Connor Ratliff would warm up the crowd and the house band that like my now wife was the front person of would be playing. And the audience was all these kids who would be like sitting on the floor, sitting on the set. And a lot of them were people who came every week. And then sometimes it would be somebody who's like, yeah, I've been watching your show since I was in high school and I live in Texas and I came for a taping. Like that actually yeah. started to happen. And they'd be doing that warm up and it would be Connor like doing bits and games with the audience and the band would be playing. And every week it would be a thing where I'd be in my green room and like they'd, they'd come to get me. And I realized pretty quickly in the cable run, like I never waited for them to come and get me. I'd go upstairs and uh, I'd stand in the back and nobody would realize that I was there yet. And I'd just go all the way in the back of the room and I'd be like, man, there are all these fucking kids who showed up for this. That's my wife. That's Connor, like my brilliant friend. There's people getting up and like dancing with him, hugging. He's running games. Like here's somebody who's been coming to the show. Like this kid used to call the show when he was like wore braces and lived in New England. And now he lives in New York. He yeah. moved to New York and he's here. And I get, to, I would just like watch it and be like, okay, the network can't yell at me about this part. I can't overthink this part. I can't, this is just like 
built a thing that makes people happy. And that kind of fills my cup too. And in the writing process, the network can yell at us. When we're done with the show, they can give us notes about whatever they're mad about. I can beat myself up for things that I didn't do right. But right now, it's just like, oh, I built a thing that someone like me needed. And now there's a room full of people that are other people who kind of identify with that. And I give myself this like 10 minute window to just let it be as simple as that. I'm like, I built the thing. They showed up for it. These are my people. And now I just get to watch them all like dance. Like if I could live in that feeling forever, that was by far the, the most joyous thing about the get the show for me was that 10 minutes before those episodes. That was just, I have none of the actual responsibility right now. And it's just all these people came together. And at the end of the day, it's cause I like busted my ass and fought hard for it and like provided the foundation for them all to come together. If I could live in that feeling, that would be it. Well, and that's like, it's it's like the least selfish version of being on stage because there's moments of like mastery on stage, right? Where you like, maybe something goes off a little bit and you perfectly wrangle it back to where you want it to be or you're perfectly one step ahead of the audience and you know that they're going to love whatever punchline is coming. But that is not a you moment i mean you get plenty out of it obviously my name is on it you know like i'm getting the most out of it i also have to work the hardest and risk the most but but it's selfless in a way that moment was the selfless side of it you know yeah reminds me too i remember once going to austin i got booked for some gig and this was like before things had popped for me now the the public access show existed and it was starting to bubble but it wasn't like it had not yet, like, there was a stretch where it has come to my, like, Carmen has told me there was a stretch where he was like, Carmen's made me laugh because he's like, we all went to your show when you brought your show to fucking IO. He's like, all these guys right. we're friends with now, like, I was, he's like, I started hosting uh, Thunderdome because I watched you host mm-hmm. that show and was like, oh, that's how, this show's fucked up. You can just host a show and be fucked up. And he's like, an upstairs gallery. He's like, your show had a lot of respect, blah, blah, blah. This was in an era before, Chicago had heard of us, this and that. Um, but there were just like handfuls of kids finding it. And I got booked to go do some promo thing at South by Southwest where I was interviewing people and me and JD were there and Shannon guest hosted in my stead. And I knew there was this one guy named Kevin Feldman in Austin and he watched the show and he had reached out or he had called, which is Kevin from Austin. And I think he probably had ordered a t-shirt or something. So I had his email address and I was like, Hey man, like, um, we're in town and we like, don't have any place to watch the show. And he was like, Oh, just come over my house. And me and JD, like the host and the showrunner of the show, we went and we watched the episode of Shannon Gestos. And it was like with him and his three or four friends who he got together with to watch the show. So I got to be like, yeah, on the other in side the, of the audience, camera, you know, yeah. and I, that's yeah. one of my most joyous memories from the whole, my whole career. 
to be like, oh, I built this thing. And my whole goal was always like, can I make the TV show that me and my brother would have loved when we were 15? Mm -hmm. Even if it's completely incomprehensible to most of the people who find it. And then to sit with some of the other people who were like me and my brother when, when we were 15. And in this case, it was like this guy, Kevin Feldman and his friends in their early 20s. But just to be like, now I get to jump out of the TV and be on the other side and just watch it with you and be like, uh. and they're all like reacting to bits. And I'm just kind of like quietly sitting there like, they fucking love Vacation Jason. Like, the fucking, they love the human fish. Like, yeah, they're actually out here. And I know they're actually out here because I'm sitting in their fucking living room. Like, right, right. That stretch when things were like big enough that someone in Austin knew about me but small enough that it wouldn't be completely psychotic for me to go hang out in their living room. <laughs> that is the part of my career that I, I don't think I can ever get back and that I will miss forever. Well, and I mean, not to be too heavy handed with the analogy, but a lot of these things are pretty similar and not just the memories, but even wanting to hang around your kid. Like these are things that you've created and you not, Obviously, a, a human being isn't a thing, but like they're they're people or things that you've created, and even helping younger comedians, and and the thing you were talking about about retiring or or, or quitting is just like you want to make something and then get out of the way as quickly. I as love possible. that. I I do. I have always loved like let's set it up. And then see what happens when it gets knocked down. And I don't need to be in control of that process from that point. And yeah. I also realized too, like I was telling you before, my wife made the joke when Carmen moved of like, who's going to be your friend now? Like, mm -hmm. here's the bottom line. Like me eating tomatoes in the sun in sandals. I, I also, I was alone in that scenario. If you can think, yeah. you know, I'm an intensely lonely person historically. <laughs> um, that is super true. And everything I'm describing, it's starting to bum me out because I'm like, it's all about like, I managed to create a thing that other people had fun at. And then I got to hang out at the thing, um, which I think is psychologically very revealing that I don't know. I often, I have felt very lonely to a degree where I built a clubhouse for a theoretical younger version of me to have a place to go. And then when it and yet you're not even in the it's not that you're feeling beloved. There's still a loneliness to you. Oh. You're not even able to fully imagine yourself in the midst no. of the action. Like when I got things. to sit in that guy's living room and actually hang out with him and his friends, I was like, I can tell you legitimately, it was not the ego stroke of like this. These guys love our show. It was like mm -hmm. it was a much more rudimentary feeling of like oh, this, this is fun to hang out. It's fun to hang yeah. out. Yeah. These guys are like me. <laughs> these are like these are like nerds, but not not like not because they check like all the Chris Hardwick boxes that he mm -hmm. laid out. Like these are people who fundamentally actually feel a little bit nervous around other humans <laughs> or who yeah. Yeah. have secrets that they're not ready to reveal so they are closed off from people in their lives and if sure. we all can get together and be like well i won't force you to deal with your shit if you don't force me to deal with <laughs> yeah, mine right. 
that was kind right. it's of not what like we're revealing. Was. It's like, can we all distract well, ourselves? I together? mean, dude, the amount of the amount of fans we had who have reached out to me and told me that they were like in the closet when they loved the Gethard show and later came out in life. I'm like, that's fucking awesome. Cause like, yeah, like it was a show for people who weren't ready to fucking totally be themselves yet because they were scared. But can we get a hundred of them in a TV studio together? And we did. And then it spread. Like, so that, that feeling of uh, those feelings of acceptance, uh, I would love. And, and I still, I mean, I still struggle with it today. I am still a, in many ways, a guy who has a million acquaintances and very few friends. So yeah, hell to me is a lonely, lonely place. And if I could live in certain feelings in the afterlife, they seem to all revolve around like, here's a handful of things I can point to where I actually felt like I got to let my guard down and relax around other people. So yeah. This have been sadly rare moments for me. What's your coma? So you're, you know, my story and this idea of, you know, a lot of shit changed for me after I was in this coma. It's, it's not a straight, I'm, I, I love a nonlinear narrative. Like there's a lot of stuff. Like I was getting in like really toxic, like Facebook fights, like after I woke, woke up from the coma and like I smoked weed for a little bit after I woke up. So I, and I, and I love that it's like not as clean as not a movie where, yeah. Right. But nonetheless, I can look at my life and be like, well, this is a pretty clear dividing line in yeah. some way. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be grandiose. It, but I think a lot of people have these. And so I'm just wondering one, like what is one coma for you where you were kind of one version of yourself before and another after? Undoubtedly, it it's a night that I talked about in career suicide. I, uh, for me, uh, I, I had a night where I was having a mental breakdown and this was a thing that had happened before and that I was hiding. And these are things that most people would probably coin as panic attack type things. Mm-hmm. Panic attacks I'll put out there are the thing that if you haven't seen them or been around people who, if you haven't had one or been around people who do, like it, they can take on very varying levels of seriousness. And, and I, I was, I mean, I was also someone who was hallucinating and thinking police were following me and I was really starting to come apart and I'd been hiding it and hiding it for years. And, uh, I, uh, had a night where I was driving home from the city back to Jersey. Um, and, and, uh, was losing it and called an ex-girlfriend of mine who I really leaned on in an unfair way because I had not been great to her. And she said, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you gotta, you gotta wake up your mom and tell her you got to do it tonight. Cause I'm telling her tomorrow, like the jigs up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such an act of love. It was tough love, but it was such an act of love. And I knew she was serious. I'm like, she's going to call my mom in the morning and be like, he's having mental breakdowns. You got to help him. Um, so I woke up my mom. I woke up my mom and I told her that I was scared I was going to kill myself. And it was like just so dismal, just so dismal. One of the hardest nights I hope to ever have. Um, but I can say that my entire life after that day was different 
than my life leading up to it. I can look back. In what ways? My life went from a life of hiding uh, to a life of, um, I'm not going to claim full openness. I'm not going to claim that I have no secrets. I'm not going to claim that all of a sudden everything was an open book and I've made a lot of mistakes in those years since. But I can say that like the dial was fundamentally adjusted where my life's main priority went from trying to hold it together by myself and hoping no one else noticed that I was coming apart. Just my priorities were hold it together and hide the fact that that's what you're doing at all times. That was most of my waking hours. And then after that, my priorities became, well, people know that you're fucked up. So lean on those people because they're doing a much better job of, of helping than you ever assumed they would. Um, and do, were you right? Like the holding it together assumes that people were not aware that you had anything to hold together. Was that right? Or were, did people know more than you suspected they knew? Um, people were well aware that I was like a volatile person and an emotional person who had some problems. People did not know that I was like, had attempted to hurt myself. Um, People didn't know that I was hallucinating police cars following me. I mean, dude, I, for years, my entire college years, um, had a recurring nightmare where there was this little bookshelf at the, at the foot of my bed. And I would have this dream multiple times a week, every week, where I would wake up, look at that bookshelf at the end of my bed, and there was a little TV on it. And it was something, you know, I was a college kid. I think I had found it on the curb somewhere and just brought it home. Mm -hmm. But it was rickety. And I would wake up in bed and I'd go, oh, that bookshelf's about to finally fall apart. And I'd get out of bed and I would just crouch in front of it and hold it as it was like trying to fall apart. And I'd just be holding it and holding it. And I had another dream that would happen too, where I'd have a confrontation with someone where I'd go to punch them and my hand would freeze before I could get to them. And I started realizing that I was having these insane pains in my chest and shoulders because I was in bed every night physically like holding these phantom punches and physically reaching out to hold a bookcase together. And when I tell you that I had those two dreams, I would have more often than not for three or four years. That's not an exaggeration. Like I physically, yeah. I was in physical pain because even in my dreams, I was actively trying to hold it together. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. People knew that stuff was up with me, but I don't think anybody understood the actual severity of it. And I did an extraordinarily good job of chasing away anyone who expressed that they thought there was more going on. And that stopped. I have this reputation for being a nice guy in the comedy world, but I can be a real impatient dickhead too and i've had my moments but i think the reason i have that reputation is because one of the really beautiful things about my 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 ex-girlfriend stepping in and saving me on that was it did allow me to prioritize um 
other things besides just hiding and trying to hold it together. And what I look back and that I'm really kind of like baffled by and impressed by from my younger self is that I just instinctively started prioritizing like other people. Like, can I make things that make other people happy? Like, can I, can I create some situations that feel open where other people feel like there's some safe harbor, you know? And my shrink has later explained it to me. Apparently this is extremely common that people who suffer from severe depression, one of the signs they're coming out of it is like, they'll go join Habitat for Humanity out of the blue or start volunteering at a food kitchen. Like once you have enough in the tank that you don't feel like you're just spending it all helping yourself, a lot of fucked up people will then take the surplus that's now in the tank that they've never had before and start putting it towards helping others. And Well, and I know you're not like a program guy, like a 12-step guy, yeah, or I think yeah, you're not, but no. like that's a big part of that shit, man, is like that's the whole thing with sponsorship is it's like using your most fucked up past to just go uh, like <laughs> this is a this is a fucked up one, but there's this like, you know, the fourth step is doing this like inventory of like, you know, every, every possible wrong you feel like you can anytime anyone's wronged you. Right. And then you, by the end, look at like your part in it. And, and there's like sexual aspects of it. There's like fear aspects of it. And I heard some AA talk where the guy was like, there's two kinds of four steps, you know, one, like you've either fucked an animal or you haven't fucked an animal. Uh, and like, Jesus, uh, (laughs) it's dark shit, but but the idea that like, you know, some alcoholic would be talking to a sponsor, be like, yeah, I fucked this animal. And the sponsor would be like, it's okay, man. Like I've, I fucked an animal too. Uh, I'm using the most extreme example. And, and I, and I, and I started regretting it pretty much the minute I I went into it, but I love it. I think it, I think it holds true. This idea that you can not redeem, but make useful your most dark experiences by just getting outside of yourself. And it can get kind of militant, you know, in the program of like, stop thinking about yourself where it's like, well, some of us need to go to therapy. Yeah. But like, but, but that idea of service is like, yeah, that's that's what I can point to. I can point towards that night as the one where it's like, okay, like now my life is not all internally focused and I can, I can think about other people for the first time. And there's been stretches where I've done a very good job of that and stretches where I haven't, but it was not it did not even feel like a possibility that was in play before that night when i was 24 years old was that night that so so that was pre gethard show yeah oh no that was that okay. was that, wait, that was not even 24 i was 21 that was 2001 oh wow okay yeah this was so this so this genuinely was and i mean i guess if you started when you were 2002, 19 2002 yeah you weren't at a point of getting the hero worship you weren't you weren't teaching yet so no. it really was pre you even being in a position to do much help this was it. a night that needed to happen for any of that stuff to right um even become possible because i mean i'd probably i mean i'd i'd i would i'd either be dead or or an addict 
or something if that night hadn't happened, I would imagine. Um, but at, at the very least, even if those hadn't come to pass, I just would never have been in a place where I could put myself out there, let alone invite other people in. It was like an actual impossibility um, until that happened. And putting yourself out there is like, I mean, creative work-wise, that's kind of your whole thing now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, that was also a byproduct of like coming up when I did. Like, you know, UCB has had many flaws. And I think as it fell apart, a lot of the dialogue for the last few years was about, you know, people feeling exploited and all these other things where I'm like, oh, man, I haven't been there in a while. And it seems like the dark sides of it have gotten much darker and and people are really Mm -hmm. not feeling good. Um, But I can say that I was there during a stretch where it was clearly like an artistic movement. And uh, I was just around so many really, really funny people that I realized like, I'm never going to be funnier than a lot of these people. But for some reason, I was way more willing to be honest. Like Mike Berbiglia pointed out to me once, he's like, you're the only core UCB person who's known for being yourself. Right, right. Everyone else is known for the acting jobs or the writing jobs or the shows they sold in that golden age. He's like, people, you know, like one of my best friends, he's like, people think of Bobby Moynihan, they think of Drunk Uncle. Like, (laughs) <laughs> they think of Zach and they think of uh, the office or Silicon Valley. And these were like, he's bringing up like the guys who were really my pals coming up. And he's like, you're the only UCB person who's known for being yourself fully. And that was, I was like, that, I found that very interesting. And so much of that. I think that's me. cool, man. Yeah. But a lot of it was me just going like, I can't keep up. I'm never going to be funnier <laughs> than fucking Bobby and Zach. I'm willing to get on stage and just be super honest about some stuff. And the crowds looked at that and just went, Oh, Oh, okay. Like that's a whole different ball of wax. So I kind of was like, can I be as honest as these people are funny? And that just kind of became my thing more mm -hmm. and more, you know? Well, and now I'm feeling very improv Herald show, super deep callback, but this is related to, the thing I brought up at the beginning mm-hmm. where that, that advice of yours that I, that I rebelled against was to do the same thing that you're, that you're describing, you know, feeling like, well, I don't want to be the macho hammer over the head. How can I, how can I beat out a check drop comic? Right. I want to be, I want to be the guy who can can figure out how to ask people what they think about the afterlife in a theater while while making them laugh still. Yeah. But you got to do it. It's like, and then I feel like ideally it's like, okay, now how do I do that? Like as, as, fully committed yes as the people doing the thing i don't want to do commit to them and their shit because now i don't have the infrastructure of a club i don't have the safety net mm-hmm. of this circuit mm-hmm. i gotta build the stage time yeah I, I gotta book my own theaters find people willing to give me the amount of time i need find people willing to you know 
even let me do this, knowing it's an experiment, knowing that it's not going to have like the built-in advertising of the clubs, knowing that it's going to be confusing people, it might not attract a crowd right away. I have to now do all of that and then still deliver on stage as hard as I would have if I had the luxury of all those things. So, Yeah, the DIY ethic of the 80s feels it's a it's a very beautiful ideal and then you realize like holy fuck man they were doing everything yeah yeah they rented the van and they found the space and the sound guy and they brought all the shit with them and they made the and they fixed the van yeah Yeah. they screen printed the shirts yeah Yeah. literally literally like handed out the flyers before the show and then got up on stage and played and it's what do you get? You get all the freedom and all the artistic gratification in the world. And also you get really tired along the way. You become a businessman. You do. A businessman. That is the show. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Your Afterlife. Go to the show notes to find more info about Chris, Mo, Mo, Mo info about me. <laughs> And also to support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Dave Marr. Tell people you know, tell people you love. Uh, If you hate the show, tell someone you hate. And until next week, remember, you are a mist. Miracles, you can do them. Have faith, you are human. Only human and human beings they do. 